Welcome to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. We're here to discuss IntelliKey, this principle of IntelliKey, which is an opportunity for conscious leaders from around the world to share their experience on how they have achieved their own personal IntelliKey, their highest potential, while committed to continuing to grow and expand themselves and support others. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Just a little bit of background. Mark and I love to talk about this. IntelliKey is one of those principles that is just now coming back to the forefront, which is an Aristotelian metaphysical principle that supports the achievement of your highest potential inside yourself. I'd like to introduce myself. I am Kirsten Gouldy. I'm an intuitive advisor, professional coach, and ex-Wall Street executive, and my co-host, Mark Stinson. Hi, Kirsten. Great to be with you again. I'm president of Bioscience Bridge, a heart-centered brain consultancy. IntelliKey is really uh, near and dear to our heart, and our guest today is somebody who supports helping others, especially women entrepreneurs, achieve their full potential. Vicki Saunders is with us today. Vicki is the founder of a global initiative called SheEO, and the hashtag Radical Generosity, I can't wait to get into that, this idea that there's a radical transformation to really support and finance and celebrate women entrepreneurs. Can you talk a little bit of your own healing journey? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's totally conditioned and I've completely been healing myself in the sisterhood that I'm creating. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I grew up in a family full of boys and two played in the NHL and like I'm like the uber testosterone competitive goddess. (laughs) Um, You know, it's interesting because my vibe, like the way that I've always created my businesses has been a very kind of a feminine approach in a, in a like competitive, ambitious way. And the more you pay attention to what the world looks like, and what we've created, the less you want to participate in that, yeah. certainly for me. You know, like why, it's all about domination and control, and it's clearly proven not to work. All of the data around how women use capital to make an impact on the world proves out that it's a safer, it's a safer, it's a more sustainable, it's a more humanistic approach that outperforms. But we don't look at that data, like we're so biased in it that, you know, like we've had a business case for 20 years saying that if you invest in companies that are led by women, they outperform. If you invest in companies that have women on boards, they outperform. But yet we don't act on that data. And if it had been anything else in the marketplace, any other metric or performance indicator like that, you would sue companies for not doing it. Because the whole point is like you're supposed to maximize profits. And so data shows that if you invest in, you know, those things, you'd be sued for that, but we don't do that. Yeah. So it's, it's like you said, it is the cultural conditioning. And, you know, it took me until I was 50 years old, for God's sake, even though I'd run all these businesses and I'd been in Silicon Valley doing a business, I did businesses in Europe and in Canada, taking a company public. I still didn't fully believe that I had a better answer until I turned 50. And then I'm like, F this, I'm out of here. Like, I'm going to stop trying to fit in. I'm going to just go show that there's another way. But it took a long time because I had to build up my confidence. I was a late bloomer. I'd be like, this doesn't seem right to me. And everyone else was just doing it. I'd be like, 
maybe, is there something wrong with me? <laughs> you know, like, but I just was never really encouraged to go fly with my crazy ideas or I didn't believe that I could for whatever reason. And I wasn't surrounded by people who were really lifting me up. I was surrounded by a lot of people who were going, what? I don't get what you're talking about. But I say this all the time, imagine if, which I, I have to get this out of my language because I had to say that a lot before it was actually happening. And now I don't have to say that. You don't have to imagine it. It's right here. <laughs> um, but you know, if you think for yourself, like imagine if you were surrounded by people who said yes, who had your back, who believed in you, who literally paid money to help you. It is a crazy, crazy thing to imagine. You truly are supporting and giving rise yeah. to the future with no strings attached. Yep. So, so I guess my, my question is, radical. Right, <laughs> it is radical. And that's the unknown quantum. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, uh, I just feel terrible about the state of the world, uh, honestly. And I, I think that this generation that is inheriting the situation that's been created has just huge work to do. We all have huge work to do, but this legacy that we've left is just unbelievable. And my experience has always been that we rise to the occasion. We really do. So there is such an opportunity for this next generation who have come in with, a, I would say, a much more transformative attitude towards what's possible. They are absolutely yay uh, and not going to deal with workplaces the way they've been set up. Thank God. Go create the new one. Yes. Um, there's just so much resistance to the existing systems we have in place and get on them. Great. So you start from there and now what audit to be and how are you going to create that? So the biggest challenge I see for everyone is how we've conditioned people in our culture to think this is the way it should be, or this is the way it is at least, you know, oh, well, that's the way it is. And like, well, what if it wasn't to everything, almost everything in society is my answer to that. And so the challenge is getting out of your own way and thinking completely fresh, if we could start over again, what would we do? And so I, I don't think the resistance and the challenges to new ideas coming in, it's like how to make sure that you don't hold on to old ideas. That's the hard part. Now, I'm excited for what they're going to come up with. And we're here as a community funding a bunch of these ideas, but we're also not just funding young founders. The range of age of our 68 ventures so far is 22 to 70 something. And we didn't ask the 70 something how old she actually was. (laughs) All of us have great ideas. (laughs) Beautiful environment that we've created. And it's, it's something that I'd just like to see more of if we could get away from our transactional world of like, what's in it for me and how do I step over you to win? The real highlight this week for me, though, is uh, talking with our next guest. Dave Petnayak is with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Dave is the CEO of Jump Associates, and it's kind of what we would call a hybrid strategy firm. He's really a trusted advisor to a lot of senior executives, clients that range from General Electric and Nike and Procter & Gamble, Target, Hewlett Packard, all of these companies that you know by brand name. And then when he's not working at Jump, he's teaching down the road at Stanford University. Dave, you're also a a published author. Your book is Wired to Care. And I really think this caring part is where I'd like to start with you, if I could. What what sort of things are you guys working on now that really use this concept of empathy and caring? Thanks, Mark. I think it's um, this idea of true caring, moving beyond just, you know, kind of paying lip service to things, but actually making that deeper connection is so important. And it's so important right now. Speaking at this moment, we are sitting here saying, oh, my goodness, it feels like the world is coming apart. But if you look at it, there 
is a longer arc to history that we're seeing. Um, some of us are old enough to remember when Amadou Diallo got shot in 1991. And at that time, we had protests. It was mostly protests in New York, and it was mostly black people protesting. And now it's almost everybody protesting almost everywhere. And to me, that's a sign of a step up in consciousness. That's a sign of of a greater connection. We're seeing something that we didn't see before. And I think part of it is technology, right? I think the internet and mobile phones have allowed us to bring that horror front and center to see it. You know, it's not like, oh my goodness, right around the time that the iPhone was created, you know, police started being horrible to black people. You know, <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> no, this has been going on for centuries and now we can't turn away from it. Right? We can't excuse it. We can't say that was just a few bad apples. Right? There are um, structural issues right, in our society that we have to do something about. So in its own twisted way, this is a marker of progress. This is a marker of saying that we can actually change. And so at Jump, where, where I work, where we, you know, we work with corporate clients to help them develop more empathy, starting with empathy for their customers. And we will do things like we'll do these strategy sessions where before we get into the strategic planning about what we're going to do, we'll go out into people's homes for three or four hours. We'll, you know, take a CEO or a chief marketing officer into someone's home, you know, just someone from Jump and, and that leader. And we'll do this with like 20 people from that company and we'll spend three or four hours in, in someone's house just getting to know them as a human being and, and then we come back and say okay what can we do you know what did we see there how is that different from how we knew our our customers before and therefore let's start making decisions and planning about what we're going to do today tomorrow in the future i think we you know when we think about what is our calling on this yes you know we did the same thing that everyone did which is like we put out a message on twitter and we said it was horrible and yes my teammates and I, we were out marching, you know, like, I guess, police brutality with many people this week. But we also said, what is our gift to the world? What can we do? So we are going to begin a process of doing those same strategy sessions, going out to homes of black Americans. And rather than doing it with Fortune 500 companies, we're going to be doing it with law enforcement. So wow. we can start to build that empathy. Right. Wow. Because if you think about it, if you think of it with, with police, the, the primary ways that they have to build empathy are that, you know, there's kind of, there's a lot of these uh, kind of like racial justice training and implicit bias training. And the results of those, while well-intentioned, the results are candidly mixed. They're not great. Or the other way that they engage with their communities is they hold a town hall and they have people just screaming at them. Yeah. And that doesn't build empathy either. Well, it turns out that, at Jump, we actually know how to build that kind of empathy with leaders better than anybody, or at least let's be more humble, better than most people. And if we don't apply those skills in, in this moment in time to do it for the folks that we have given you know, a monopoly on violence to, our law enforcement, it, it is it's basically negligence to sit on the sidelines. Well, and I, I wonder, I think about those other opportunities we've had to interact. Uh, coffee with a cop, snacks with a sheriff, you know, all these kind of, uh, we're going to be out in the community. 
Yeah. But this idea that we're going to bring you literally into the home. Yeah. You know, that's the ultimate walk in my shoes, right? This is how I'm living rather than, you know, talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Jason, you're so right. Right now, many of us, not just black people or brown people, white people are feeling anger. They're feeling outrage. And that is completely understandable because it's not just racism, you know, that like, oh, there's a few bad people in the world. It is systemic racism, right. which is the system is rigged. The game is rigged. And you can feel that anger welling up inside you when you feel that injustice. Now, here's what I'm going to say, which is a little bit controversial. Can you go to a different place? Can you choose to feed that anger? Or do you choose to find a sense of compassion, to find a sense of love for all the people involved in, in, in that system? Do not see one group as victims and one group as oppressors. Uh-huh. All of us right. are the same whole. Okay, so you have a choice as to do you want to feed that anger or do you want to feed that instinct for caring? So how do you really come from that? Because there really is lifelong ancestral, like you said, such deep racism. I'm curious about how you even begin to unravel that in a police department. You know, I'll tell you for me, and and, and this is kind of a warning to our our listeners, our friends on this podcast, which is I'm going to share some stuff with you that I don't necessarily come front and center with my CEO clients. I think my views on this because of my upbringing are just very different from kind of standard American views. Right. And, and so that can be kind of confronting to people. Uh, for, you know, I'm not an atheist. There are a lot of, you know, in, in California and on the coast, there's a lot of people who don't believe in God. And when they go to Texas or Oklahoma, because I've seen this, and they tell somebody, I don't believe in God, you get this interesting reaction that goes in stages. First, it's, it's I, I didn't hear you right. What did you say? And then it's, it's confusion. It's, what? No, I, I don't understand what that is. How do you not believe in God? And then the third phase starts to be um, kind of poke holes. No, that's not true. Come on. You must. Right? And then it descends at some point into deep anger. Right? Screw you, man. What do you, right? Because it's so confronting to your, you, you know, to everything that you, of how you frame the world. Right. So, so why do I share that with you? Because that's what happens when you tell somebody in Oklahoma that I don't believe in God. What I've experienced in California is when I tell people that I don't believe in free will and that I don't believe in the self. And that's where things start to get. Yeah, that's a huge disruption, I have to say. That's a huge disruption. Especially in, in our society today. And so for me, the idea that I am white or black or brown or male or female, these, I, you know, in my upbringing, I have lived for thousands of lives and I'm going to live for thousands more. And this one, this time around is just a moment for me. And I happen to be born with this clothing. And, and, and next time I'm going to be wearing a different costume. I'm an Indian growing up in New York who people saw me as an Indian. And then I went and I lived in India and they said, you're not an Indian, you're an American. What's your accent? You can't even speak Hindi properly. Right. right? And then at some point I, I started to realize that these identities are just costumes that we put on. They serve us in many ways, but they are just costumes <laughs> to, a, to a greater truth. While I'm not telling that to, to my CEO clients, that's the underlying perspective I'm coming in with. 
Yeah, you know, Mark, you and I met years ago, 20 years ago, I think we were talking about. And back then, empathy was kind of a hippie idea in business. The idea that empathy would like drive some sort of growth and innovation. Please don't say the word feelings in a meeting. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And and so, you know, my colleagues and I had jumped. We were kind of on the edge of like, oh, so, I mean, you tell me, what was your impression when you first came across us all those years ago? Well, it was a little Feeling for most, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then you know, starting about I would say five, ten years ago, it became like, oh yeah, this is starting to make sense. Like you know, the business world certainly came around. What I'm finding is empathy is actually on the back foot as an idea now. It's more fragile now than it was ten years ago, and I'm seeing it with my students because my students have are they're coming in, they're you know, college seniors, but they're coming in with the mindset of if you aren't like me, if you didn't grow up where I did, if you don't share my gender, if you don't share my race, if you don't share my background, you can't know me, you can't empathize with me, and to even try is offensive. And so here, and I'm trying to get them to see that, no, just because someone can't know you perfectly does not mean it's not an incredibly sacred thing to try. And to actually connect. And in fact, we might discover all sorts of things. And oh, by the way, when we say, you know, if you say you can't know me, my question back to them is, do you know you? Uh, That's a very question. And do you want to be known? I think that's right. And I think in in the last several years, what we have seen, um, and I'm criticizing all sides and all of the debate on this, is many well-intentioned people who are coming from a place of anger rather than a place of real compassion. And I'm seeing a lot of people who are fighting for their cause rather than the cause, as opposed to, you know, like, where are the, you know, like people of color fighting for women in the Me Too movement? Where are women fighting for black people in the Black Lives Matter movement? We need to be coming together for a greater cause. And we are living in a moment in time where people are just not ready to do that because they're holding on to their identity like it's armor. Right. Mm. We were always trying to, to, I guess, when you say to be nice to others or to try to understand others, you know, there is this natural, I find myself doing it. I know how you feel. It's just, it's a natural, convenient response. Well, I, I know how you feel. Yeah. When now people are, you know, you cannot know how I feel. Yeah. You know, you haven't spent the time listening or you can't understand. How could you possibly know how I feel? Yeah, that's uh, right. But it is well-intentioned, perhaps, to say, at least I want to listen. That's so how do you bridge that? How do you walk a person to that deeper understanding that you're speaking to? It's the kind of thing you can I don't think you can learn from reading. I don't think you can learn from, from writing an essay. You have to do it experientially. You have to go out and spend time with people. You have to make genuine human connections. Um, and you have to open your heart to it. And so, you know, the greatest challenge is can you open your heart to people who you believe have done you wrong? Can you find compassion and love for you people you see as your oppressor? Can you find, you know, that level of compassion? That's a level that I know most of us right now in this country are not ready to go to, but we need to get there. 
going back to the idea that we want to bring these guests on that don't just talk about beliefs and philosophies. Yeah. It's like, you know, how do we live this stuff? How do we practice it? Well, B, welcome aboard to the podcast. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. So B, a link is described as a paradigm shifter and a reverse designer and a real impact player. And the inventor of the A-Linker, the vehicle for social change. The A-Linker is just a vehicle. How do we create a world where people can live into their potential? Like, I think I'm blessed that I'm a gender weirdo. I'm not a typical boy. I'm not a typical girl. So I actually wasn't as conditioned because it didn't apply to me anyway. So I think the essence of what I see and who I am in the world is from a place of where I have a different, slightly different viewpoint from a slightly less conditioned place. I had to invent myself to find my place in the world. Mm -hmm. And from, um, from being a weirdo, a gender weirdo, as I always say, because there's no language for what I feel, I think I went into international work. Because when I was in the Netherlands, I was raised, born and raised in the Netherlands, I was always the weirdo and I didn't understand it. I'm in my own culture. Why am I the weirdo? Why do I not fit? Why don't I understand what's happening around me? And I placed myself as a white person in Kenya to start with. And I was now in charge of being a weirdo. Mm -hmm. I chose to be the white person between the black people in Kenya. It was on my terms. And that resulted into 10 years, into a little bit more than 10 years international work with a total of three and a half years in Afghanistan, ultimately where my soul came home. Can you touch that a little bit? Because that's a big word. In IntelliKey, it requires the component of the essence of the soul, yes. pure alignment yeah. of who we really are. Um, yes. So Afghanistan, whew, and I don't try to understand it. I know what happened there. The moment I crossed the border at Torham, I cried, I wept, and I did not know what was happening. I was home. My soul was home with the people too. The people do not judge. We judge, we have learned to segment people on how they look and how they dress and all that stuff. And it sounds very weird because we're so brainwashed to think about Afghanistan, what we think here in the Western news. But in Afghanistan, people don't judge. They took me as I am and they dressed me half boy, half girl. And they were like, you can't wear a shovel kameez with pockets because that's too, my, too much a guy. You can't wear a dress that's like not you. And they made something, a tailor who had never left Jalalabad. And he made something completely androgynous to me because that's how he felt I was. I had full access to the women communities there. I had full access to the men's community there. I've been in places where no woman has ever gone. I've been in meetings where no woman have ever gone. I've had women offer to me to marry me knowing full well that I was a woman, but that's not how I was felt. And it's not because I'm a white woman. That happens, and I learned that in Afghanistan, there is a, <laughs> there's not just two genders. Let's make that clear. That's only the Western people that figured that out. And that's a system, a binary system. And I learned in Afghanistan and in other cultures too, like there's something happening here between, it's not typical boys, typical girls. So there's cultures with 17 genders. Here in Canada, indigenous people recognize five official genders. And as I learned about them, there's male, female, something in between, and there's a two-spirited person. I was like, if anything, 
that is who I am in essence. And in Afghanistan, I could be that. I could be my soul. I could live my soul. And there was no judgment. You were fully seen. I was fully seen. And I've personally, I have never been anywhere safer in my life than in Afghanistan. Fully being myself. I wasn't anything else than myself. It's so, just so interesting that, I mean, we, we talk all the time about different cultures and we have these preconceived notions of different countries and different cultures, but just traveling, but like you said, living there, just you've got to see the rest of the world, don't you? I think there is something about personal awareness that people need to go through because I've seen so many foreigners travel to countries and abuse people there because they're so brainwashed that they're better than the rest. You don't want to do that to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so unless there is awareness about who I am in the world, then I'm no more or no less than anybody else. And I'm here to share. And you can laugh about what we have is our cultures. It's not what we are. Who we are is radically generous people that want to give and receive and live in community and want to be seen and acknowledged. So if you connect on who we are, everything is possible. And there's no cultural differences. And do you find that this enlightenment that you found, does that fuel then further desire for social change? Does that drive you even more? I don't believe in change. I don't believe in systems change. I don't believe in in changing the world. I don't believe in social change. I believe in changing our perspective because we've been conditioned in a certain system and we do things every day, all day long that are not congruent with our values. And we actually constantly traumatize ourselves. I think that's essential to feel that. There's no outside systems that we need to change. We are the system. Mm -hmm. If we want to have systems change, we need to acknowledge that we are the system and we are conditioned to support things that are actually not for our well-being. Why would we support that? And that takes a lot of practice and awareness to see it that way because we're so conditioned. Like, what's the problem that you're solving? I don't have a problem. Huh? The world is full of problems. Like, no, racism is not a problem. It is there by design to divide us so that white people don't understand or don't know mass incarceration that makes money to a few companies that now have free labor. Racism is by design. It's not a problem. It's a symptom of white supremacist system that benefits from racism. And so I think that the more you're part of any of those segments and have been confronted with life, back to what we earlier said, the more we are forced to choose who we are. And that's, I think, where white people, white heteronormative people that always have sort of walked the lines of privilege, are lost at the moment because they don't know who they are. And they get really scared and sad and angry because they've never really been confronted mm-hmm. with life. Because life makes you grow. Life makes you uncomfortable, gives you pain as you grow, as you work through discomfort. Any other culture learns to move through discomfort. Only white supremacist capitalistic system has taught us that we have a right to comfort. So we learn something and then we put it in a pattern because I've learned it, now it's in a pattern. So the comfort of the pattern, whatever we've learned, if I am better than somebody else, I've learned that now. Now it's in a, in, a, in a pattern that's comfortable. And now the system tells me I have the right to that comfort. So I have the right to the privileges that go over the back of other people. Mm-hmm. It's a very sophisticated system. 
And so people that have never been confronted with the question like, who am I? And who do I want to be in this world? Are completely lost at this time. And they get angry. They get mm -hmm. really, really angry. I, I speak for myself, let alone maybe some listeners who came to hear about a business and a, a linker bike. And we've gone into some new areas that are they provocative? Are they uncomfortable? Do they break some old thinking? Absolutely. And to allow a little bit of discomfort. If our listeners, if you're a little bit sweaty right now, because you're hearing some new ideas, I think we're in the right place. That's what I would say. We're in the right place. And I refer to myself as an edge walker, because on the edges, you constantly feel like, who do I want to be? Do I want to go? Where do I want to go? What, what, what is the essence of what's happening now? Privilege and, and, and white supremacy. You hear a lot of white people say, like, I feel so guilty. It's like, if you feel guilty in white supremacy, you're still writing the rights of your privilege. Acknowledge who you are and use your privileges to make it right. And ultimately, that means, why is your brother there taking the beating of the policeman and why are you not standing next to him? Yeah, That's what yeah. it ultimately means. Yeah. I'm part of well, an indigenous women's circle here in Canada. And we talked about allyship. And one of the women said, being an ally is nice, but it's not enough. Who's going to be there? Yeah. We don't need to be just allies. We cannot just be allies. It's not, not good enough. enough. It's not we enough. We have to be there. You know, David, give us an assignment for the week or two going forward. What's something that maybe the average person could do to really begin to build a, a bridge? I love that question. I love that. Yeah, you know, number one, you know, simply go to a protest and talk to the protesters. And make sure you talk to both white people and black people and Latino people. And talk to the police on the sides of that protest, too. Make genuine human connections as much as you can. And see if you meet them as real human beings. Wow. Mm -hmm. Rather than going with your fist raised, go with open arms. Wow. Go and talk to people. If, if you're doing that, sit and meditate and think about, you know, try to feel what is it like. And, and this will offend some people because you can't know me. I understand that argument. But try and feel what it might be like to be a, a young black man growing up. Try and feel what it might be like to be a, a white policeman who just came back from Afghanistan or Iraq. He was in the military and is now in, in, in a police situation. Wow. Try and feel what it was like to be a mother of, of someone who lost a child. And try and inhabit those spaces. People will tell me, you can't do it. I'm not telling you to do it. I'm telling you to try. Mm -hmm. Well, you're also describing a mindset of, say, the closed fist, go with the open, open yeah. ears, open heart, open hand. It's a very different mindset, isn't it? What is that place of compassion? What is that place of joy? How do you channel your anger and frustration to be positive good? How do you step outside and do things and come from a place of service, holding that you're just going to do it even if it doesn't work? Like to not be attached to the fruits of your labor, but to just do the labor. It's like, you know what? We're going to get out there in the world, my colleagues and I, and we're going to do some stuff with law enforcement. We're going to try and build that empathy. And even if it doesn't work, it might be a colossal failure. It could totally suck. But we're not going to do it because we want the outcome. We're doing it because the act of doing it is our path. Is what we got to do. Very yeah, strong. I love that. And I just personally want to say thank you. Uh, thank you. This is such a great conversation.
conversation. Thoroughly yeah, enjoyed it. It's really, really been great. Thanks. Dave Pednayak has been our guest. This idea of IntelliKey leadership is what we're all about. And if we can add our small voice among our uh, listeners to this idea that we can all have a higher full potential, then uh, that's what we're all about. We really appreciate you being a part of the conversation with us. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our websites, www.pureintellikey.com and www.mark-stenson.com. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.